Well, good evening, everyone. We come now to our study of the book of Numbers as we move our way through the Bible. Uh, this is the fourth book in what we call the Torah. That is the first five books of the Bible or the book of Moses, the books of Moses. If you've got your notes there in front of you, you can follow along. If not, you're welcome to uh, listen in. Uh, but before we get started, let me pray uh, and ask God for his help. Lord Jesus, we do now commit ourselves to a time of studying your word. And pray, O oh God, that you would join us wherever we find ourselves, that you would join us as we open your word and study the book of Numbers. Lord, help us to see uh, your glory. Help us to see the realities of sin in the life of the people of Israel, Lord, but also in our lives. As we read the Bible, God, we confess and recognize that the Bible also reads us. You show us things about ourselves. You show us the truth about the world. And so, God, we ask that you would help us now. We pray all of this in your holy name. Amen. Well, the date of writing for Numbers, or the date of the events of Numbers, would be around 1406 B.C., as we've noted before, Moses is most likely the author of the book. Uh, perhaps another author would have written some of the closing uh, pieces after Moses' death. But the purpose and the theme of the book of Numbers is the gradual fulfillment of the promises to Abraham that his descendants would occupy the land of Canaan. So we're seeing those promises gradually being fulfilled, while the book also highlights God's presence with Israel, but also Israel's unbelief. God is faithfully present with the nation, but the nation persists in unbelief. We'll see that God prepares them to enter the promised land. He talks about purity and obedience. We're going to look at the disobedient generation and then we'll see uh, the arrival of a new generation. Well, the outline of the book, the, the outline of the book, uh, if you will, breaks down into to three chunks. The first ten chapters are the final instructions before Israel leaves Sinai. They've left Egypt. They've camped at Sinai, and that's where they still are. Uh, in chapters eleven through sixteen, uh, we find the forty-year wanderings in the wilderness of Kadesh. Most people are familiar with the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. That's recorded here in this book. Chapters 17 through 36 will focus on the plains of Moab overlooking the promised land. But in the book of Numbers, Israel's discontentedness reaches its climax, comes to a head, even while God is actively blessing and caring for them. So Israel becomes very discontent, and the, the, the book of Numbers records some of their actions that come out of a heart of discontent. But they become discontent even while God is being faithful to them. Recall that Leviticus is not structured around a story. Last time we, we studied, we studied the book of Leviticus. It's not a story, it's a record of law. But Numbers picks back up with the story where Exodus left off. So we've got Genesis and Exodus, which are 
written around stories. Leviticus is a book of law, and now Numbers is picking up the story again. The book opens with a generation of Jews that should have entered the promised land, but failed to do so because of their unbelief and because of their disobedience. This book covers about a 40-year span of time, and the book concludes some 40 years later with a new generation poised to enter the promised land. The first generation that should have gone in does not. The book concludes with a new generation on the border of the promised land. And so the end of the story takes us back to where it started, and it's a pointed reminder. The end of the story is a pointed reminder of what the former generation should have done. Well, the book gains its title, that is Numbers, it gains its title from its opening story. The nation is numbered according to tribe. There are 12 tribes and they number them and figure out who all is present, how many. What kind of a fighting force do we have? Because God had called upon Israel to go into the land of Canaan and drive out its inhabitants. That's that's language of war. They're to go in and make war. And so a fighting force of 603,000 550 men is identified. We see that in chapter 1, verse 46. But among them, among the fighting men, God exempts the Levites from their army duty due to their special responsibilities of working and ministering in the tabernacle. So there are 12 tribes. Each of the 12 tribes live in Israel. 11 of those tribes are called upon to supply men for the army. And so we get the number 603,550 soldiers. But God says the Levites, who have been tasked with ministering the the tabernacle, are, are exempted. Well, next we find God ordering the camp. The tabernacle would be central. The Levites would divide into four groups or four camps each one guarding one side of the tabernacle. And so if you're familiar with the tabernacle, uh, you know its basic shape. If you're not, it's basically just a a tent with a rectangular wall surrounding it. And so on each side of the tabernacle, on each of its four sides, the Levites would camp and guard. And then each of the other tribes would camp around it. No other camp was broken into four. It was just the Levite tribe. Detailed instructions are given to Aaron and his sons. Aaron is the, of the tribe of Levi. He's the first high priest, the brother of Moses. We see chapters 5 and 6 em- emphasizing the necessity of holiness in the camp of Israel. And then chapters 7 through 10 continue to emphasize holiness and obedience. Well, I want us to notice a few things as we move through our study of the book of Numbers. And the first, th- the first theme that I want us to see is that God prepares the people. Before leaving Sinai, God prepares His people for their journey. He prepares them to enter into the promised land. <clears throat> During this time, which, which extends from they've crossed the Red Sea, they've come to the base of the mountain, this is back in Exodus uh, chapter 17. They've come to the base of the mountain, And they've been there for about two years. But before leaving, God gives them, God prepares them. He's given them the Ten Commandments during this time. He's given them the instructions for the tabernacle. He's forgiven the people's rebellion and idolatry. If you can go back and read in Exodus 32. He has taught them about their need for forgiveness. And he has also 
taught them that he will provide all their needs. But there are some specific ways in which God prepares the people. We see in chapters 4 and 5 and again in chapter 6 that God prepares them by teaching them about purity. Chapter 5 highlights the need for purity within the camp as well as within their marriages. So they are to live a certain way to God's glory. They are to go about their marriages in a certain way to God's glory. Chapter 6 introduces us to a group that will live at an even higher level of holiness. And we call those people the Nazarites. They are to function as a visible sign of how God has set the whole nation apart. If you know of Samson, who is one of the judges, we'll come to that study in a few weeks. Samson is a Nazarite. But God also prepares them by giving them priests. He teaches them about purity, but he also prepares the people by giving them priests. Chapters 1 and 2 outline where each tribe should live with regard to the other tribes. Chapters 3 and 4 focus almost solely on the Levites and their work. They are to prepare the people to be and to become God's chosen people, his sacred people. The Levites' special status, their their function, their living arrangements, all of these things highlight the centrality of tabernacle worship in the life of Israel. But God also prepares the people by giving them his presence. He teaches them about purity. He gives them priests. But God promises Israel his presence. We see this in chapters 6 and also in chapters 9 and 10. This is God's most special preparation. The tabernacle is meant to represent God's enduring presence with Israel. God's special presence and blessing upon the people of Israel is summed up in chapter 6, verses 22 through 27. If you have your Bibles, you can be flipping there. Numbers chapter 6, verse 22, we read these words. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying... Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel, and you shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. See God giving them his special blessing. Chapters 9 and 10, we see that God is giving His presence. He's promising His presence with the people. First 14 verses of chapter 9 recount the celebration of the first Passover meal in the wilderness. They celebrated it the first time in Egypt, and now they are celebrating it in the wilderness. It's a meal that, that reminds the people of God's miraculous saving power in Egypt. In Chapter 9, verses 15 through 23, we see that that God promises to lead the people through a cloud. The silver trumpets of chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, are intended to sound the breaking of camp. It's a reminder to the people that God will provide them with leadership, that He will provide all of their needs. And so, as the people are going about their daily lives, if these silver trumpets were heard, what that meant was God was preparing to move the camp. And so the people had to go about packing up their belongings, and they had to prepare themselves to move. And they could trust that this cloud, which was God's presence, would lead them. 
And so in chapter 10, 11 through 13, we see Israel begins to move for the first time as a nation. When they came to Sinai, they were a group of refugees. While at Sinai, God appointed a a leader, gave them a law, gave them an identity, gave them a method of worship. Now they are departing Sinai as a formalized nation. And chapter 10 concludes with a triumphant summary statement. Look at chapter 10, verse 33. It says, So they, that is the nation of Israel, they set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey. The ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day whenever they set out from the camp. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. And so... What we have here is this triumphant procession where God, who is the king over his people, is leading his people in the way that they should go. He's leading them to their resting place. He's leading them to a land of provision. They are in line. They have been ordered. They have been given an identity. They have been given life as they follow their king. And so chapter 10 really closes with this incredibly triumphant picture. But here's the application before we move on. God prepared his people then. We see that very clearly. God prepared them then, and God prepares his people now. God teaches the church about purity and about a life of obedience through King Jesus in the gospel. He taught the people of Israel about purity. He teaches the church about purity. We see this in Colossians 3 where where Paul writes, Uh, If you have died with Christ, then your life is hidden with Christ. Therefore, set your mind on the things above. And then he moves into a section where he says, uh, flee immorality. Put those things away. They're not fitting for the Christian life. And then in chapter 3, verse 17, verses 16 and 17, Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. So God teaches the church about purity. We also see that God prepares his church by giving her pastor shepherds. In Ephesians chapter 4, God says, uh, or Paul writes, that God has given the church all of these different offices, one of which is pastor. And there are a number of terms used in the New Testament, all for the same office. Now, today, the most commonly used term is pastor, but it can be translated pastor or shepherd or elder. Elder is the most commonly used word in the New Testament for our office of pastor. But God gives his church pastor shepherds in order to prepare the people. The role of a pastor is to equip the people of God through teaching the word, through ministering the word, both in a corporate gathered sense, but also in an individual one-on-one sense. But God doesn't just give the church pastor shepherds. God has also made each Christian a priest unto himself. You see, in the Old Testament, the people had to go through a priest to get to God. But in the New Testament, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and 10, that God makes each of us priests unto him. We have direct access to, to God through Christ. 
But the third thing we note is that God prepares the church by giving each Christian the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. So God prepared his people then. God prepared his people. God prepares his people now. But a second thing I want us to know that God prepares his people, a second thing I want us to see is that the people did not trust God. See this in chapters 11 through 16. This section of the book records the great tragedy of the story where the people of Israel fail. After the beautiful picture of God leading his people in a royal procession, having prepared them and promised them his presence, the people lose faith. They had seen God bring plague after plague upon Egypt. They had, they had been freed from their captivity. They had plundered the Egyptians on their way out. They had seen God part the sea and destroy the Egyptians. They had experienced his faithful provision of food and water in the wilderness. And now they had received his law. They had become a people. They had an identity. What would be their answer? How could they waver in their faith, we might ask? Well, we see the people displayed their lack of trusting God by constantly complaining. Chapters 11 and 12 are really a record of the people of, of Israel complaining. On their journey from Egypt to Canaan, the people began to grumble against Moses. And they even accused God of doing them wrong. And it says right in the first ver- verses of, of chapter 11 that the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. Can you imagine? Can you imagine having received all that they had received, having seen all that they had seen, that this people found it acceptable to whine? One pastor notes, these are the kind of people who would complain about the temperature of the water miraculously gushing from the rock in the desert. Or these are the kind of people who would complain about mud on their shoes while walking across the bed of a parted sea. You see, they complained about their hardships. They were no longer slaves, but a freed people in the wilderness on their way to the promised land, being led by their faithful God, and yet they complained. They complained about their food. They lament the free food in Egypt as if free food compares with the blessings of God. They say in chapter 11, verse 4, Now the rabble that was among them, they had a strong craving. And the people of Israel wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. Remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing? The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic? But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. They found it acceptable to whine about food. We see Miriam and Aaron complained about leadership. Chapter 12. Moses' sister Miriam and his brother Aaron complain about Moses having authority, saying God surely hasn't only set Moses aside to lead. Their, their complaint was that they wanted to lead. They wanted authority. They wanted power. They wanted prestige. But really, in chapter 12, the section focuses on Miriam's jealousy primarily. In chapter 12, Miriam is judged harshly. She is stricken with leprosy. And yet, in his kindness, Moses intercedes for her, and God heals Miriam. But we also see that the people displayed their lack of trust in God by rebelling against God. They constantly complained, they constantly whined, but they actually end up rebelling. 
Chapters 13 and 14 are probably what we would call the sad center of the book. Chapter 13 is full of hope as the spies enter the promised land. After centuries of waiting, after centuries of being enslaved, having been delivered and promised the the, the land of rest, they stand at the edge of the land and the tribes sent spies in to evaluate And in chapter 13, verse 27, the men report back. It says, They told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Basically, they're saying it's a wonderful land. We won't have to work. We won't have to cultivate. It's already there. But in the very next verse, in verse 28, it says, However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. In the very next verse, all the men, all the spies, all but Joshua and Caleb, let their doubts, their worries, their concerns be known before all the people. They're not just talking to Moses. They're not just talking among themselves. It says they let their fears, all this stuff be known before all the people. These men who were called to be leaders of the people failed miserably, where they should have instilled courage, they instilled fear. And because they instilled fear over courage, they lead the people in rebellion against God. So God says, I'm going to give you the land. You're going to go in. You're going to have to conquer. I'm going to give it to you. And this people who had seen God wipe out the sole superpower in the world at that time, they had seen God decimate the armies of Egypt fear now they fear because these people are big and they're well fortified and so they rebel what we see the result of their rebellion is that god punishes them god promises that they will be judged in chapter 14 verse 10 we read these words Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones, but the glory of God appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. So God promises judgment, but... We once again see right directly following in verse 13, Moses intercedes for the people again. He's interceded for them before, and now he's interceding for them once again. The Lord in his mercy does not immediately wipe out the people from the earth, although he could have. He doesn't immediately wipe them out, but he does hand down a death sentence. In chapter 14, verses 21 through 23, we read that this rebellious generation will not enter the promised land. They will instead die off slowly in the wilderness. It is a death sentence on an entire generation of people. One pastor notes, the wilderness will not be a bypass to the promised land. It will be a graveyard. While the generation as a whole will die off slowly... God does hand down a swift judgment on the leaders who had failed and who led the people in a rebellion. Chapter 14, verses 36 and 37, we see that God strikes them down with a plague. 
But when Moses reported God's judgment to the people, they foolishly try to take the land for themselves. When, when Moses comes back and says, look, guys, because you have rebelled, because of your hard-heartedness, because of your unbelief, God has taken the land from you. You will not enter the land. The people think foolishly to themselves, well, well we will take it. We will go in. We'll, we'll be strong enough now. And so they go in and make war with the Amalekites and the Canaanites, even though Moses and the ark were not with them. And they are decisively defeated. So here's the application of this part. The Israelites whine and complain. They rebel against God. And we can be like the Israelites in not trusting God. You see, like the Israelites, we have seen the mighty works of God's deliverance. We see it primarily in Jesus Christ, yet we are sometimes content to whine and complain about far lesser things like food and water and clothing and jobs and other such things. How often do we feel free to complain about our misfortune in the Lord's hearing? How often do we complain about provisions like food, water, clothing, and housing? How often do we complain about God-given leadership, perhaps struggling even with jealousy like Miriam? You see, like the Israelites, we can easily rebel against God through lacking faith. We sometimes look at what God is calling us to and think, well, that looks great, but... And then we insert all of our doubts and fears and worries and anxieties as if those are valid reasons to not trust God. Sometimes we try to force our way into God's blessings, and like the Israelites, we fail miserably. And like the Israelites, we sometimes come under judgment for our lack of faith and rebellion. In Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about uh, there are sins in which people persist where God eventually gives us over to the consequences of our sins. 1 Corinthians 11, talking about the Lord's Supper, Paul says that some of you are taking the supper improperly. You're coming to the table sinfully. And for that reason, some of you are sick and even dying. See, sometimes we come under the judgment for our lack of faith and our rebellion. We must take seriously the nature, cause, and punishment for sin. We must see the seriousness of sin in God's punishments of the Israelites. We must think about how much death occurs in the book of Numbers. I encourage you to go and read the book of Numbers and just see how much death occurs because of sin. But we must also consider the root of sin. Take note of the connection between the people's dissatisfaction and their sin. Again and again they complain. Again and again they fall into sin. In fact, in their complaining, they are sinning. And while things can and should be criticized from time to time, we should never complain against God and His ways. It is in the Israelites' complaints and hardships about food and leaders that God has given them. It's in complaining about those things that the true spiritual state of their heart is revealed. You see, reading the story of Numbers, we see a few things. We see God's spectacular deliverance of the people from Egypt without asking them to fight, without asking them to vote, without asking them to do any such thing. God did it all. We see God feeding them in the wilderness without asking them to do any work, without asking them to farm, without asking them to do anything. 
We see that God has given them a most humble and faithful leader in Moses who chooses again and again the good of his people rather than his own good. We also see that the people cannot see any of this. We see it. They can't. They're blind. They are not satisfied with God, nor with his gifts of protection, provision, and leadership. But instead, these people grumble against God about the things they don't have. They imagine evils that do not exist while ignoring the blessings that do. You see, like the Israelites, we too struggle with dissatisfaction with what God has given us. And this dissatisfaction is often the root of much sin in our lives. Such dissatisfaction tells us more about the health of our souls than our circumstances do. Dissatisfaction indicates that we are feeding at the wrong place, trying to nourish ourselves at the pig slop rather than at the, at, at the banquet table of God's grace. The people rebel against God. But the third thing I want us to see is that in the midst of it all, God perseveres with his people. In the midst of it all, God perseveres with his people. We see an enduring tragedy. There is no doubt about that. The tragedy of the people's sin. But in the midst of it, we see that the book of Numbers is actually a book of hope. Even though the nation had rebelled, the Lord would allow Aaron and his sons to continue on as priest for the people. The people would still have access to God. God demonstrates this promise by making Aaron's staff bud and produce fresh almonds. He takes a dead walking stick, makes it grow flowers and produce fresh almonds. We see that God perseveres with his people by providing instructions for priests and purity. Chapters 18 and 19 outline instructions for priests and purity concerning special offerings after the nation's rebellious refusal to enter the promised land. Chapters 28 through 29 review the required festivals and offerings that the people are to observe. Chapter 30, God teaches the leaders what true faithfulness before the Lord means. It means having responsibility for oneself, for one's word, and for one's household. The second thing we see is that God perseveres with the people by remaining gracious despite the fact that they continue to sin. In chapter 17, the people, fearing God, misrepresent God's word. This is reminiscent of Satan's twisting of God's word in the Garden of Eden where he comes to Eve, Satan does, and says, Did God actually say? We see the people of Israel doing the same thing. We see that even Moses, the most humble and meek of men, the most humble of leaders, is not immune to sin himself. In his anger, he strikes a rock instead of speaking to it as the Lord has commanded. His punishment would be death before entering the promised land. You might be thinking that that's an awfully harsh punishment for hitting a rock instead of speaking to it. But remember that God's leaders are judged by a stricter judgment as an example to the people. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20, it tells the church 
that if an elder, that is a pastor, is caught in sin, you rebuke him in front of the church. You see, for, for most every church member, there is a process to discipline. You're to go to him or her privately and then go with two or three and then take it to the church. But because leaders are held to a higher standard, the church is told if a pastor is in unrepentant sin, you rebuke him in front of the whole church that all may fear. God's leaders are judged by a stricter judgment. Chapter 21 of Numbers tells us about the bronze serpent. God's judgment on the people's sinful complaining. They start whining again. And so God sends what Numbers records as fiery serpents. I don't know what that means, but it sounds terrifying. God sends fiery serpents into the camp and they start biting people and the people start dying. And so they cry out to Moses and Moses goes before God and God says, well, fashion a bronze serpent on a pole and put it up in the center of camp. And if the people will just but look at it, they will be saved. This is the background of the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 at night where Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be raised up for the salvation of the people of God. Much like the serpent was raised in the wilderness, so too will the Son of Man be raised up. We see in chapter 25 that the Israelite men commit immorality and they commit idolatry. And God addresses this offense with a plague, killing 24,000 Israelites. But we also see that in this last plague, the last of the disobedient generation is wiped out And it brings a close to the 40-year wanderings in the wilderness. God perseveres with the people by remaining gracious despite their sin. We also see that God perseveres with the people by giving them a second chance. While the first generation was disobedient, God restores the new generation. He gives them new life and a new chance to enter the promised land. Chapter 21, we see that Israel fights and defeats the Canaanites for the first time. Chapters 22 through 24, we see that God uses even the enemies of Israel to bless the nation. We see that with Balaam and his donkey. Chapter 26 overviews a new census of the new generation. A fighting force of 601,730 men is identified. And in chapter 27 of Numbers, we see Israel's new leader, Joshua, is identified. The name Joshua means deliverer. We see that God perseveres with the people by allowing them to reach the promised land. As the book comes to a close, God has restored his sinful people. They are about to enter the promised land. As I said earlier, the book ends where it begins. In spite of Israel's chronic rebellion, God ultimately brings success. Chapters 32 through 34 describe their initial entry and division of the land among the tribes. And we see that God's sovereignty is on full display. We've seen that in Genesis. We've seen that in Exodus. We've seen that in Leviticus. And now we see it in Numbers. That God's total control of everything is on full display. The people, having been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, are about to enter the promised land. But, re- but go back to Numbers chapter 15 and verse 2, because God says something interesting there. He uses the phrase, when you enter. Now, he's talking to the rebellious generation, the generation that would not enter the promised land. But he says, in his sovereignty, 
when you do enter. See, God can say that before it happens because he's sovereign. He knows that it will come about because he intends to bring it about. And what God intends to happen cannot fail to happen. And so let's close with the application. God perseveres with his people to see them into the promised land. We see that in Numbers and we see that today. Numbers helps us to see that God's mercy is tied closely to his justice. God punishes all who rebel against him. One pastor said, I fear many people do not understand God's mercy because his mercy is all they want to see. But God's mercy is meaningless without his justice. You will not understand the mercy of God if you do not look long and hard at the justice of God. You see, in Exodus 34, we read these, these, these words. God is slow to anger, full of steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, yet he will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. We read these words in Numbers 14. God is slow to anger, full of steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, yet he will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. How is it that God can forgive iniquity and transgression while also holding the guilty accountable? Well, we find the answer in the cross of Jesus Christ. God put forward Jesus Christ as a propitiation for our sins. That is, in Christ, God would execute both his steadfast love in forgiving sin while also executing his perfect justice upon sin. This is why in Romans chapter 3, Paul writes that in Christ's crucifixion, God becomes both just and justifier of the one who has faith. He is just in that he rightly punishes sin, and he is the justifier in that through the death of Jesus Christ, all who have faith in him are made right. That's how we can read the words, God is slow to anger, full of steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, yet not allowing the guilty to go unpunished. Numbers is a book of hope. We also see Numbers makes a few appearances in the New Testament. We see it, as I said, in John 3 when Jesus talks about the serpent in the wilderness. But we also see that the, number, the, the story of Numbers is meant for our instruction. Paul, talking to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, writes these words. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, who were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that flowed, then the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 6, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. 23,000 fell in a single day. 
We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he takes a stand, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You see, Paul understood that the people of Israel rebelled against God, that they failed, that they fell under punishment. And he said, don't be like them. Recognize that God has promised to bless us, that God perseveres in spite of our sin that God has promised to see us faithfully into the promised land. And so what we see as we study the Bible is that the story of Israel is just a small telling of the story of salvation. You see, God worked through Moses to lead the people out of captivity in Egypt through the wilderness and ultimately delivered them into the promised land. And in a far greater, far more powerful way, God works through Jesus Christ to lead the people of God out of captivity to sin through the wilderness of life and promises to see us faithfully into the promised land of heaven where it truly will be a land that flows with eternal and perfect milk and honey where its fruit is full and ripe and available to all. And so the book of Numbers with all of its sin, with all of its, with all of its plagues, with all of its death, the book of Numbers is a book of hope because it points us to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. King Jesus, we have seen very clearly, very clearly that you are the only hope. Lord, if we foolishly think that we can somehow obey our way into heaven, remind us of the book of Numbers. Remind us of the words of Paul from 1 Corinthians 10 that these things are written down so that we might know better. If anyone thinks he has righteousness enough to appease God, let him take heed lest he fall, is what Paul says. Lord, we want to be a people who are righteous. We want to be a people who are obedient. We want to be a people who live in submission to you fully and always. So God, help us to keep our eyes on the cross. Help us to remember that you are a God of faithfulness, a God of steadfast love, a God of forgiveness, but you are also a God of justice. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the time we've had in your word, and we pray all of this in your name. Amen.